0: Despite growing up in Albuquerque, New Mexico, the first time I ever saw a cow tongue was when I was in Mexico City for a summer back in 1997. And I, I give you that preface because you would think that seeing a cow tongue would be commonplace growing up in Albuquerque, but alas, I was deprived of that experience. When I moved to Mexico, when my friends got me up in the middle of the night and said, We've got to got to go to the best taco shop in mexico okay and so we're driving through the streets which you can only do in mexico city in the middle of the night all the way across the whole city past hundreds of taco stands that looked identical to each other by the way to the one that's the best and the taco stands in mexico city they're all in food trucks like you know we have along the, the mall here but they open up and you know out opens like this gas grill and there's a bar and so you sit kind of on the side of the truck there and you you eat right there and they're cooking the food right in front of you it is an impressive experience and what you can do at these taco stands is you eat your way through the cow like you order, there's a picture of the cow, and you order different parts of the cow. And it's not like in the United States where you're thinking of like, you know, Taco Del Rio or whatever that place is, Rio Taco, and where you can like say the name and out comes the taco all perfect. No, no, what happens here is that you say the name of what you want, and that part of the cow appears on the grill in front of you. And you see it in all of its glory right there. It's like you might have ordered a tripe taco or tripe taco before, but what you get in Mexico is the guts of the cow on the grill in front of you. And, and they do it all the same way, chop it up, onions, pineapple, tortilla, there you go. You know, in the States, you might order barbacoa tacos, but in Mexico, out comes the whole like, head of the cow on the grill and slice the meat off, or tacos de ojo, which they sell at District Taco. You can get these, so don't act shock at District Taco. But at District Taco, when you get it, you just get it in the taco, but there you get the eye of the cow on the grill in front of you with all its things that go back into its head and there it is. But nothing prepares you for tacos de lingua. (laughs) Because again, a very district taco, you can get it for lunch tomorrow, but you will not get the experience because when you order tacos de lingua, what comes out of the little cooler there is the lingua, the tongue. And you're not prepared for how large this tongue is. (laughs) Well, i had never seen a cow tongue as such. I had had the experience of seeing a cow stick its tongue out at me before. And so you're thinking like this little thing. Oh, no, my friends. And it makes sense. It would be huge because it's got to go to all, you know, like 17 cow stomachs or whatever, four, whatever it is but it's huge, it lays down, it's massive, it's shaped like an L and it's just there and they grill it in front of you and chop it up and tortilla and onions, pineapple, there you go, taco de lingua. So when I came back to the States and I was asked to speak at a junior high camp on this passage, I went to an international market and bought a cow tongue and brought it with me and held it up for all the students to see and marvel at I mean, this is what the thing is, and they all got to touch it, and afterwards we tied it together to make it like this big, and we went out in the snow and we played cow tongue football with it. And <laughs> you can get a great spiral with that thing. And, and it does not get beat up. You would think that it would get beat up. Oh, no, you would play for two hours with that, and it looks just like when it started. It's an incredible invention of the Lord. And last night I told Deidre that I wanted to go to Fresh World Market and and show you what a cow tongue looks like this morning. And uh, because I married above my pay grade, she she said, you're not a youth pastor anymore. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So know that if I did not have a wife that is godlier and and better than me and more mature than me, you would be seeing a cow tongue right here. (laughs) But I'm thankful for my wife's common sense restraint. You marvel at the size of it, but the human tongue is similar. You only see a little part of it, but it goes down, not to all of your stomachs. It goes down to your heart. It goes down to who you are, and that's what stands out about the human tongue. It runs right down our throats and reveals to us our hearts let me explain it this way. What is the greatest, highest, most noble thing a person can do? I'm sure I've told you this before, but I remember listening to Christopher Hitchens, the renowned atheist philosopher on NPR, and he was giving a challenge to the listeners, saying name a virtuous act. Name any virtuous act and atheists can do it better. And what he was fishing for was, you know, you saying something like philanthropy is good and he'd say the best philanthropists in world history have been atheists. Or, I don't know, helping old women cross the street is good. Well, most crossing guards are atheists. I mean, that's what he was after. find some, you know, villain atheist from world history and he'll find you 10 Christian villains from world history his angle. And so the challenge he gave the listeners was call in and name one virtuous act that an atheist can't do better than a Christian. And I know right where I was, I pulled over and I'm dialing on my phone and I just keep getting busy signals. And finally, I'm yelling at the radio the right answer, which is yelling at the radio, often a response I have when I'm listening to NPR. What's the one virtuous act that an atheist can't do. Worship. And this, by the way, is the most exalted act a person can do. This is not some secondary or tertiary activity. This is the greatest thing God has given a person to do. The most exalted thing a person can do is worship. The greatest command, according to our Lord, the greatest command is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. But how do you distinguish somebody who's doing that here versus the atheist here? They're sitting next to each other on the outside to look the same. And after all, everybody has said, you can't can't judge heart motives by the outside, right? I saw that on a tattoo once. Only God can judge me. (laughs) So how do you tell the difference between the two actions, the atheist and the Christian, which one of them is doing the greatest thing possible? And the window into the love of God in the heart is the tongue. It is the speech. That's the distinction. That's what God has given to us to express our love and our worship for Him, is our speech. And that's why the tongue has a very, it's a small member, James says, but it has extreme power for both good and evil. Last time we were together, we looked at the first part of James 3 and focused on the evil, but focus on the good for now for a second. What can the tongue do that is good and exalted and noble? What can praise God? Hebrews 13. After a, a whole book about the superiority and the the preciousness of Jesus Christ, how he's better than angels. He's better than any person you've ever met. He's better than Moses. He's, the new covenant he brings in is so good, Hebrews says, that it made the old covenant obsolete. And through faith in him, even the old covenant saints were looking forward to him. Through faith in him, he's, he's bringing the gospel to the world, and so you should press on and run the race before you. You should endure suffering, chapter 10 says, and uh, endure the hardships, chapter 12 says, and press on in your faith, and you should stop grumbling, chapter 12 says, stop complaining, strengthen your weak hands, lift up your droopy knees, do some work. This whole book about the preciousness of Jesus Christ and how privileged and special it is to know him ends, chapter 13, verse 15, with this command. Therefore, Through Christ, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. I mean, what is the main takeaway from this exalted view of Jesus Christ? It's that you would continually be using your lips to praise God through Jesus Christ. Proverbs 15 has much to say about this. It says the prayers of the righteous are desirous of the Lord. The Lord desires to hear the prayers of the righteous. Proverbs 15, verse 7. The lips of the wise are used to spread knowledge. God gives wisdom to his people, and the wise spread it. Exodus 13, verse 9. Before Moses gives the the law, it is declared that the law of Yahweh should always be on your lips, in your mouth, on your tongue. The law shouldn't necessarily be on your wall primarily, it should be in your speech. You see it in the New Testament. Romans 10 verse 9, kind of the entryway to the gospel here is confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. You see it when we gather in church. Ephesians 5, 19, we come together speaking to one another. This is corporate element, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing. You have to love how that verse ends, especially if you're not a gifted singer. Singing and making music to the Lord making melody to the Lord in your heart. So you're singing with your voice, but where's the melody? Your heart. Praise God it ends that way. <laughs> the melody is inside of you, and so the treasure that's in your heart, the greatness and the love you have for Jesus Christ and the preciousness of Christ its in your heart, comes out in song. It comes out in wisdom. It comes out in the law of the Lord. It's treasured in your heart and it's musical in your heart and it's melodious in your heart and it comes out into the world through your speech and your tongue and that is the most exalted human activity right there the most virtuous act think of peter the apostle peter in his life known for brash speech known for his quick wit there was never a question he didn't have an answer to and i'm not saying his answers were always right i'm just saying he always had one (laughs) But when the Lord ascended into heaven, that sobered up his speech really quickly, didn't it? Think of what he says in 1 Peter 3, verse 9. Don't pay back evil for evil or insult for insult. Instead, give a blessing, he says. That's Peter. I mean, if John would have said that, we'd say, of course, he's the apostle of love. But Peter says that. (laughs) Somebody insults you, don't insult them back. Bless them instead. That word blessing, by the way, it's youngalitzo. It means to say good news, say a good thing about them. It's the word we get from evangelism. You're evangelizing by saying good things about the gospel to other people. Here it's just translated a blessing. Somebody insults you, bless them. This is what Paul is doing in Ephesians 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Speaking blessing. First Peter, again, 1 Peter 3, 15. says, set apart the Messiah as Lord in your heart so you're cherishing jesus as savior in your heart and the verse goes on and says be ready always to give an answer to anyone or defense to anyone who asks you for the reason, the hope that's within you, notice the connection. You're treasuring Jesus in your heart, you're storing it up, you're you're keeping it in, you're controlling your speech and keeping in your treasure and your glory, and you're delighting in Jesus in your heart, and the delight is growing and growing and growing, and you're stockpiling it there until it bursts forth in a defense of the faith, until it bursts forth into blessing to other people. That's the high calling of speech to build up others, to bless others, to bless the Lord, to speak truth into the world, to spread the gospel, to praise God being the pinnacle of that. And that's why the tongue is so privileged and set apart in God's anthropology. Because the tongue is you in a unique way. You want to know what somebody thinks? Listen to them talk. And I know people say, oh, I should have thought before I said that I didn't think you know you teach your kids think before you speak that's helpful helpful advice but it's not a good excuse when you don't think before you speak right you you say something and then you shouldn't have said it and then you say I didn't think before I spoke that's not an apology right if I say something that's unkind or hurtful or slanderous or a lie and then I say oh I'm sorry I didn't think before I spoke well that almost makes it worse It'd be better if you said I thought and I calculated before I said that and now I realize that my thinking was wrong and my calculations are wrong. But instead when you say I didn't think before I spoke, what you're saying is that that is what's in my heart. And I did not think long enough to realize I shouldn't say it out loud. That's why your speech is so powerful because it reveals what's in your heart. I mean, who who teaches your tongue to talk? (laughs) Where is it drawing its information from? Go back to the cow tongue. Where does it lead? Right down to your heart. That's why Romans 3 says your tongue is an open window into the graveyard of the soul. You want to know what kind of wickedness is inside of you? Listen to yourself talk. Matthew 12, verse 34, Jesus says, You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you're evil? And we often just skate right by that question to get to the rest of his speech. You know, go Jesus, denounce those Pharisees. But pause at the question. It's a good question. How can you, being evil, speak good? Notice what he's saying there about speech. It is coming from the heart. If you don't have any resident goodness in your heart, how would one expect to hear goodness from your lips? The tongue is supposed to be used for worship, but it's not. It's supposed to be set aside to honor Christ, but it's not. Instead, it's predisposed to sin, just like the heart. I mean, God made the heart to worship, and he made the tongue to to worship. And because of Adam's sin and Eve's sin in the world, our heart is broken, which means our tongue is broken. And so instead of worship, we use our tongue for evil. Let me say it this way. If praising God is the highest calling, what is the most base thing you can do with your tongue? What is the most wicked thing you can do with your tongue? And think of the commands. There's lots of ways to answer that, but think of the commands. If the greatest command is to love the Lord, then the greatest thing you can do is praise Him. The second greatest command, like the first, is to love your neighbor as yourself. And so it follows then that one of the most wicked things you can do with your speech is to tear down your neighbor. And that's what James is going for here in verse 9. With it, our tongue, we bless our Lord, Yungalitzo to, to the Lord and Father, and with it we curse people made in the image of God. Now, that phrase there, with it we bless the Lord. The Jews, during Jesus' lifetime, had three prayer times a day, 18 prayers, 18 memorized prayers for each of those slots. Not every sect of Judaism did this, but many of them did. Those people, then, would say a total of 54 prayers a day. And each of those prayers ended with the phrase, Blessed be He. Blessed be God, but they would change it to, Blessed be He. And that phrase, it comes from 1 Kings 148, one of David's last recorded words, Blessed be Yahweh. Naomi says the same thing, blessed be God, who has showed kindness to me when Ruth went with her. That's how they spoke all the time. That's what you should be doing with your speech. And so the Jews would say it all the time, blessed be, blessed be, blessed be he, blessed be he, blessed be he, he," 54 times a day. And James is saying, great, you're great at saying that. You're great at blessing other people in verse nine, at blessing our Lord and Father. Uh, And I don't want to bore you with the Greek grammar here, but Lord and Father are one person. It's the same person. Uh, this is speaking of the, the deity of, of God, obviously, the deity of the Father, the deity of our Lord. And with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. The best and the worst, right there. Notice why cursing is so evil because you're cursing someone made in the image of God. Why, does, why is it wrong to curse at someone? Why is it wrong to tear someone down or lie about them or slander them? Why is it wrong? It's not because they have value in and of themselves. It's because of whose image they're in. That's the that's the picture James is going for here. You don't lie about someone because of the worth of that person in and of himself. It's, it's sinful to lie about somebody because of the image that person is in. I recently read the, the book Silence. I don't know if you're familiar with that book. It's, it's a powerful, powerful depiction of Catholic martyrs in Japan, 1500s, the wicked things that were done to them, and the main way to confront them and try to get them to apostatize from from the Catholic faith was to put an icon on the ground in front of them. And of course, in Catholicism, but especially this really remote form of Catholicism evident in Japan back then, you know, they thought that salvation came through the sacraments and came particularly through their relationship with these idols, these icons. And so the Jewish, uh, the sorry, the Japanese persecutions would say. You know, step on the icon or spit on the icon, and that was your way of denouncing your your Catholic faith. And there were scores of people that were martyred for this, that were killed in unspeakable ways. And as I'm reading this book, I'm thinking, so much of this is wrapped up in Catholicism because they thought that salvation came through their relationship with these idols. But setting that aside, how would I respond to that kind of scenario? Like, I understand that stepping on an icon often to be the Virgin Mary or sometimes it'd be the baby Jesus or even a cross because that was the easiest one to make in the clay. If you step on that, you're not really stepping on the gospel. So would you do that to save your life? And that's what I'm thinking. Is And that book made me angry at idol worship and angry at sacerdotalism and angry at persecution. And, but it did raise that question in my mind. And th- in the book, it catalogs all this persecution, and then you never meet anybody that would do that and then keep on following Catholicism. There's not a single example in the book. Instead, they thought that if you stepped on it, and they would never do that because they thought it was breaking their relationship with God because of what's represented in the image. Now, apply that to what James is saying here. Why is it wrong to curse at someone? It's not because of who that person is. It's because of whose image that person is in. It's 2 Corinthians 4. We have this treasure in jars of clay and I don't want to preach tonight's passage now. It's tempting, but I don't want to. But you have this treasure inside of you. For a Christian, it's a triple treasure because you have, you're in the image of God, but beyond that you have faith in, in Jesus Christ who died to bear the penalty for your sins and you have the Holy Spirit who's drawn you towards faith and taken residence inside of your heart. There's this Trinitarian concept that you are in God's image, but it's true even for the non-Christian who's in the image of God. And if you, a non-Christian has inherent value and worth and dignity and honor because of whose image he's in. Even apart from a relationship with Christ, every human being has inherent value, worth, dignity, and honor. And this is an echo from James 2 about favoritism towards uh, the rich over the poor or the sin of racism in the middle of, of James chapter 2. That's why those sins are so wicked. Because it's an attack on the image of God. You, you, know, you can't murder God so you murder a person. You, can't, you don't have the courage to curse at God and say all the evil things you want to about God so you say them about somebody else. You're so mad at God for letting that person do this or that person lie about you or that person take advantage of you or that person inflict harm on you and your family and you recognize that it is God who is sovereign over this but you're not gonna yell at God. You will yell and curse at that person which is wrong because you're tearing down God's image in that person. This is why there's echoes here of Genesis 9, of course. They get off of the ark and God, for the first time in world history, establishes capital punishment. He says, whoever sheds man's blood, by man's hand shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God, he made mankind. This is a world that had not had capital punishment before. and Now it's instituted. Think about different ways it could have been instituted. Whoever murders someone should be put to death. How about by a lightning bolt from God? <laughs> I mean, if if the point of the death penalty was to be a deterrent for crime, a lightning bolt immediately from heaven would do the trick, I think. But that's not how it's instituted. The point of it is that because people have this value worth, dignity and honor, and that they're in the image of God, if you break that, if you step on that, if you murder that, then you will be put to death by other image bearers. That's the force of that. Makes you ask, what does it mean to be in the image of God? Genesis 1, 2, describing the image of God is the ability to subdue the earth, to cultivate the earth, to multiply upon the earth, to give life. And the, those who have life will in turn subdue and multiply the earth. I mean, this is something the animals don't do. Animals have offspring, but the offspring don't become farmers. Angels don't do this. You get to the New Testament, the earth wasn't given to angels, it was given to mankind, those in the image of God. You get to the New Testament and the image is driven home to be not just that, but to be worshiping God and delighting in God and magnifying God in your heart. You can magnify the glory of God by how you live and how you reflect that that glory in your life. Again, angels and animals don't do that. If you got to choose between being a person or an angel, You should be a person. You don't get to choose, but if you did, choose being a person. I know angels can fly and they don't die. Those are two points for angels. But being a person is in the image of God. When Jesus came to earth, he didn't come as an angel, he came as a person. Sanctifying the human body just by God's presence in one. And so when you murder, you attack that. You attack the very idea of the Trinity tearing at the personhood of the, of the second person of the Trinity, his incarnation, tearing at the image of God in all of creation. That's what happens when you murder. And so, of course, you say, oh, I don't murder. I'm off the hook with this. Well, you know where this is going. Of course, Jesus says in Matthew 5, 21, you've heard that it was said to those of old, don't murder, but whoever murders will be liable to judgment. I say to you that everyone who's angry with his brother has committed this crime. Everyone who's angry for, with his brother is liable to judgment. Follow the logic. If you murder, and that's an attack on the image of God, and so you should be put to death. If you hate or lie, I mean, Jesus goes on to say, whoever insults his brother is liable to the council. Whoever says you fool will be liable to hell. It's not a small point here. He's saying when you tear down with lies and slander and deceit, cursing, you're attacking God himself. So you think you're a specter of the Lord because you haven't actually murdered another human, but you do recognize that cursing at someone or tearing at someone is the same thing that Moses was opposed to in Genesis 9. It's the same underlying sin. You just had the self-control to not act on it. You just said it. But the same sin is resident in the heart. I mean, that's why the tongue is such a periscope down to the heart, This is why jesus says matthew 12 27 by your words you will be acquitted and by your words you will be condemned this is a heart issue i mean here's the main point this morning your speech is a heart issue matthew 12 27 by your words you will be acquitted and by your words you will be condemned and we read that and we think hey it's 50 50. (laughs) it's like you win some you lose some some people are acquitted by their words and some people are condemned by your words you know i'll try to be the one acquitted You're not reading that passage the right way. Because is anyone ever going to be acquitted by their words before God? No. If you were to die and stand before God for judgment and set the law of God aside, it is you and the Lord, the law of God will pause and leave on the side. It's still out there and it will condemn you also, but let's just leave that aside for now. It's you and the Lord and the only standard for judgment is the things you have said. Have you ever said Something evil against the Lord that makes you guilty of and deserving of judgment. Have you even ever, even, ever even created a double standard and said, you know, somebody who does this or that or the other thing deserves judgment, and then you've done this, that, or the other thing? Or you've lied and said you've done those things. Your speech itself is enough to condemn you, is Jesus' point. You don't even need outside evidence, just your own speech condemns you. Now, why is that admissible evidence? Why is your speech admissible evidence? Why can't you just say, I wasn't thinking? Because it's out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. It's not that the sound waves of cursing tear down the image of God, it's that the heart of hatred desires to tear at the image of God. So, your problem is that your heart comes absent worship, your tongue then is absent worship. You need a new heart, which comes, of course, through the gospel, that Jesus takes on a human nature. Has a human existence he never uses his tongue for sin he never uses his tongue for anything other than what it was given for to worship and honor God and speak truth yet he's killed by liars and deceivers by people by the way who 54 times a day said blessed be he blessed be he blessed be he murder God blessed be he blessed be he blessed be he in his death he bears the punishment that your words make you guilty of that your words make you deserving of he bears that himself and rises from the grave three days later having atoned for sin and he gives you a new heart that new heart changes you that's why Ephesians 1 verse 3 blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ in him we have all the treasures in him we have spiritual blessings that's what's given to us. And so in Christ, we have this new nature and new speech. That's what it should be. But is that what it is? Is that your experience? That in Christ, your new heart and new nature mean you have transformed speech? Is that what you have experienced? And so I think the main thrust of this passage is primarily about the ought to versus is distinction. The rest of this passage goes on to describe what ought to be the experience in your life not what is the experience in your life what ought to be in your life is that that should be true your new heart should lead to new speech but is that what you've experienced and this is james's point back in chapter 3 verse 2 where he says if you're able to control your tongue you are a mature believer and so james is charting out here this this life existence in christ that your new nature should produce new speech but there's indwelling sin still there's indwelling motives that are still corrupted and you're fighting against them and you're trying to put them off and put on good things throughout the rest of your life and so you're growing throughout the rest of your life and growing in your love for christ growing in sanctification and you should be growing in your speech but that is a process and so your speech does go up and down i remember when i was a brand new believer been saved for like a year and I was coaching high school soccer the team that I was coaching was playing my brother's team and the team I was coaching lost which ought not be <laughs> <laughs> we were the better team we deserved to win I remind my brother of that often he reminds me that they won so after the game this is a secular high school after the game I my team around and i was pretty upset and i let them have it it was i mean I, this was a disgrace how you guys played an absolute disgrace these 90 minutes were horrible you should be ashamed of yourselves i said all kinds of things that would disqualify me from ministry right now and these guys melted you know, like their heads were down They were sad, except for one student. The only Christian on the team. One Christian guy, Josh Wintermute, 15-year-old kid, just stood and just glared at me. The angriest look I think I have ever received. I think it was a righteous anger. He just stared at me. And these other kids were melting, and he was just shaking his head. And when I saw him... I don't know if I had the word convicted yet, but I felt it. (laughs) So I let the team go, and he didn't move, he just stood there. And I didn't want to look at him anymore. (laughs) And finally he walked up to me and said, if you're going to call yourself a Christian, you better not ever talk like that again, and left. He's now a pastor in Oklahoma, by the way, (laughs) many years later. And he's right. If you're going to call yourself a Christian, you better not talk like that. And why not? Well, to use an analogy that's from somewhere in the Bible, if if a spring is fresh water, it should not also produce salt water. If a tree is producing figs, you shouldn't go and find an olive on it. It shouldn't be that way. I mean, even nature teaches you it shouldn't be that way. And nature teaches you that if you have a new heart and if you have a new nature, that you should not be. If you're fresh water, you shouldn't be bubbling for salt water. I mean, if you were to find a, and there are saltwater springs and there's brackish springs and there's freshwater springs. Okay, you stumble across a saltwater spring. You taste it. It's salt water. You're not going to go back to it tomorrow and see if it's got fresh water in it. <laughs> if you've got a brackish river. It's brackish today. You're not going to go back to it the next day and, and try to drink from it because you know it's still, still brackish. If you, you have a tree that is growing figs, you're not going to go to it tomorrow and see if there's an olive there. Nature teaches you that. But that's the problem with this passage. That's the ought to versus distinction. As Burkhoff writes in his commentary on James, he says, quote, a man is, after all, not a tree. <laughs> I think that's a funny line (laughs) a man is not a tree I mean that is the problem is that we are fighting that war that is the problem is that we have these competing natures that's why Jesus says I tell you on the day of judgment you will give an account for every careless word you speak he tells you that to help you do this fight, to teach you the seriousness of this fight. Put off your evil speech. Put off your lying ways. Put off your, your cursing and, and recognize the heart that's behind it. And you might say, oh, the Bible doesn't give you a list of words I'm not supposed to say and uh, why are English words, English curse words are okay because you know, they're not banned. Jesus spoke Greek, you know. And Jesus gets all the way around that and says, hey, I'm condemning anything careless. I'm condemning anything with anger in it. I'm condemning the heart. You have a new heart? Great, put those things to death. That's the nature of the gospel. Christ gives you a new heart and you grow in love for him and affection for him and you grow the rest of your life and you're not instantly sanctified, of course, but the tongue is a great window into how sanctified you are. (laughs) And so you should grow. And if you're able to control your speech, you are a mature believer. How do you grow though? Okay, so you say, I want to put off evil speaking and I want to put on blessing. Put off lying and put on truth telling. Put off gossip and put on evangelism. That's what I want to do. Put off complaining and put on worship. That's what I want to do. Is it as simple as stop saying this and start saying this? And the answer is no, because look where my arms are pointing. Back to the heart. You want to grow in telling the truth? You want to grow in evangelism and worship and praise and the highest calling? You want to grow in the greatest commandment? and the second greatest commandment? You have to go through growing in your love for Christ. That's how you do the put off, put on, is you put off evil speech because you love Christ and you say uplifting things and things for edifying one another and worship because of your love for Christ. Let me illustrate it this way. Elizabeth Prentiss, perhaps you know her name, lived in the mid-1800s. She was a pastor's wife. Her husband was actually a seminary professor down in New York City. They lived up in Maine. She was often without him as he traveled down to teach. In that time, she actually became a best-selling Christian author. She wrote the book Stepping Heavenward. And it's a book that I would encourage anybody, but especially college-age Ladies to read that book. I mean if you read that book when you're in college It will make a mark in your soul and it will You'll go back to it in your thoughts the rest of your life Well she wrote that earlier on in her marriage and Over the years she developed health issues. She became practically an invalid by 1850 Unable to really walk around without extreme pain In that year she taught two of her children die And she was really a broken woman and she, she kept a journal and she wrote in her journal that she recognized that every time she put pen to paper, it was a war for her speech. And she, again, this is, she's a best-selling Christian author at this point. <laughs> so she understands what she means by it. It's a war for her speech. Is she going to use her speech to complain and murmur or to worship and express a trust in God now if you were to come across her back then invalid often spending time without her husband seeing two of her children die and you were to hear her complain or murmur you probably would not even correct her if anyone was in a position to complain or murmur you would think she's there but she saw it as sin and knew that every time she said a word or wrote a word that was that battle there it's a razor's edge, isn't it? One motive makes it wicked, one moment makes it righteous. Right on the line. And so she wrote a hymn, recognizing where this battle is at to herself. We know it now is more love to thee. She wrote it as a prayer to help herself understand that that battle is waged. The battleground, it's the tongue, but the battleground is the heart. And if you grow in love for Christ, you can grow in putting off sin and putting on worship. She kept that hymn to herself her whole life. Thirteen years later, it got finally published, put to music, became exceedingly popular. She wrote towards the end of her life. In light of the popularity of the hymn, she explained it this way, quote, To love Christ more is the deepest need. It's the constant cry of my soul. Out in the woods or on my bed, when I'm happy and busy or when I'm sad and idle, the whisper keeps going up from my heart for more love, more love, more love. Lord, we know that this is the battle for our heart. We have no hope to put to death the deeds of the flesh except through love for Christ. And so that is our cry. God, that you would cause us to grow more in love with Jesus. Whether we're going through a period of joy or a period of trial, whether we're spiritually mature or immature, whether we're new in our faith in Christ or have walked with him many decades, this still is our cry, Lord. We beg you, help us grow more in love with Christ. It's through Christ we have our sins forgiven. It's through Christ we grow in his likeness because he is the object of our affection. So help us grow today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me invite you now to stand and let's sing this song together.
1: sing this with me. More love. More love to thee, O Christ. More love to thee. Hear thou the prayer I make on bended knee. This is my And This still my prayer shall be More love, O oh Christ, to thee, love to thee More love to Thee More love to Thee Amen You have been listening to Emmanuel
0: with Pastor Jesse Johnson You can find more resources like this at ibcva.com. Here is a parting word from Pastor Jesse. If you have any questions about what you heard today, or if you want to learn more about what it means to follow Christ, please visit our church website, ibcva.com. If you're not a member of a local church and you live in the Washington DC area, we'd love to have you worship with us here at Emmanuel. We're located in Northern Virginia, and for more information about when and where we worship, check out our church website. I hope to personally meet you this Sunday after our service. But no matter where you live, it's our hope that everyone who uses this resource is involved in their own local church. Now may God bless you this week as you seek Jesus constantly, serve the Lord faithfully, and share the gospel boldly.